You're listening to the Real Estate Entrepreneur Podcast with Terrence Murphy, where we cover sales, investing, and entrepreneurship with an emphasis on real estate. Each podcast, Terrence and his guests will bring you informative and inspiring information within the real estate industry. Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Entrepreneur with Terrence Murphy. This season, season three, we're going to be focusing on multifamily acquisition, multifamily syndication, multifamily financing, multifamily capital raising, the whole nine. So we're just going to dive deep into multifamily. I think, you know, that's why I wanted to name this show Real Estate Entrepreneur, because it's about sales, investing, and entrepreneurship. So we're going to really start focusing more on the entrepreneurship piece and diving deep. So today I have a guest that we've connected talking syndication, talking multifamily. He's acquired a good amount of assets in my hometown. Really proud of what he's built. Uh, welcome to the show today, Mike. How you doing, man? Good. Hey, thanks, Terrence. Uh, it's an honor to, ha- to be here alongside of you, man. Thanks for having me. If you could give us a one to two minute, just kind of synopsis of your story, how you got into real estate, and then we're going to dive in, man. All right. Uh, yeah, I'm a multifamily guy. Uh, myself and my team and my partner, we've been buying uh, garden style, B-class, multifamily for, gosh, I guess around 14 years or so now and nothing else. Mm-hmm. And we've acquired, I guess we have around 35 properties at the moment, a little over 7,000 units really spread geographically across the smile of the country from Virginia through the Carolinas, Florida, Dallas. As you mentioned, we love Tyler, Texas, uh, up into the Midwest, uh, Kansas City in particular, Phoenix, California, and up into Seattle. Traditionally buying anywhere from 100 to 300 units and, and really looking for a great value add play. Either it's mismanaged from an operational standpoint uh, or it has some physical challenges or the rents are under market, the interiors aren't up to speed with where the market competitors are. And, you know, we've been We've been able to amass a you know a portfolio that's now worth a little over a billion three at the moment. But got, got here just being a real estate guy, man. I was a civil engineer. Always wanted to be to learn real. I always wanted to be a developer, Terrence. And I just always had this niche for looking at land. I dragged my poor father all over the place, saying, "What could we do here? What could we do there?" And it wasn't his thing, so I had to go learn it. But, uh, did a lot of entitlement work. Uh, getting uh, securing approvals for uh, the likes of you know Walmart, Walgreens, uh, a lot of oil company, Exxon Mobil, McDonald's, you name it, uh, across the country. Uh, worked for Toll Brothers, a big national home builder out of Philadelphia. Gosh, I probably built over two thousand you know semi custom luxury homes for them. Worked commercially in New York City for British Petroleum, doing their real estate development there, including some projects globally. And they bought Arco, excuse me, in the West Coast 2001. So I went from New York City to Los Angeles and helped them develop gas stations from Seattle down to San Diego and really just had an entrepreneurial itch. And what was all along was trying to figure out how do I do it on my own? Um, I knew how to get it done. I didn't always know how to make money doing it. So I went back, got my MBA at at University of Southern California. And then I I jumped, partnered up with some investment bankers out of Los Angeles and New York, did a few development projects. 2008 hit, it was ugly early and often, uh, got hammered personally. Yeah, we all did. Had done a, a little bit of everything real estate wise, right? Including owning a bunch of single family homes and flipping homes here and owning some small apartments and development over there. So I was, uh, 
I was blessed with having lost almost all my money, Terrence, but I was, uh, I was blessed with having done a little bit of everything. And I had the opportunity to, to really, as, you know, as Warren Buffett says, buy when there's blood in the streets. There was a lot of blood and, you know, coming out of 2008 in 2009 and, started buying apartments, uh, specifically in Texas, because that's where the top job growth markets uh, were at that time. And that's really my niche, investing in really well-located assets, well-located apartment um, areas that have great access to jobs, employment centers, good mass transit when we can get it, uh, and good retail. And uh, we've been buying multifamily ever since. Man, that's awesome, bro. I got a lot of questions I'm going to dive into. And I, I think the audience... So first off, congratulations. I always tell people, you know, because we have a course that me and Amber and Sarah and Kyle put together and it's called the Billion Dollar Agent. And then we got one called the Billion Dollar Investor. And it'll be one called the Billion Dollar Entrepreneur. Anytime you've done a billion in anything. So if you're worth a billion, you sold a billion, you've built a portfolio of a billion. That's impressive. So congrats on going over the threshold of the B man in your multifamily portfolio. That's a big deal. Thank you. So when we think about, you said classes earlier and we talk about style, I have listeners across the gamut, right? People that have billion dollars in a portfolio. And then I have listeners that are buying their first investment property and trying to transition into multifamily. When you talk about style, what is, when you think about style, what does that mean to you? So is it garden? Is it this? Is it suburban core? What are the kind of the top five, top three to five styles that you try to track? And what, is that, what does that even mean if I'm looking at a multifamily asset? That's a good question. So what I buy, what we buy is garden style, which means two-story walk-up apartments. And they're traditionally in more suburban areas, right? Urban areas, you don't find as many of them. Uh, you see, You find more mid-rise, high-rise, lots of stairs, right? You got to take an elevator up, but garden style. Uh, and most of that was built, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s. But as you go out into the outskirts, you know, that's traditionally what you see. Uh, garden style, either two-story or three-story walk-up multifamily. That's good. Did I answer that answer that right for you, Terrence? No, that's perfect. Now, what are, what are some other styles if people were saying, okay, what are the top three to five styles I need to be researching or tracking? What are some other styles of multifamily? And then we'll dive into some other stuff. Yeah. You know, I really think, you know, multifamily traditionally is broken up into a couple different classes, right? It can be market rate apartments, which is a you know the traditional apartment they're asking nine hundred dollars and if you want to you know sign a one year lease you're paying nine hundred dollars a month. There's also senior housing which can be broken up into you know subacute housing, memory housing, traditional assisted living housing. Uh, there's also age restricted housing. I own one of those. That's that's a, you know you have to be age fifty five or up to live there. Uh, there's student housing. You know you're not dissimilar to where you are at AM, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's affordable housing as well. Uh, that's not just Section 8. You know, you, you have to qualify to be a certain percentage of the median average income in any certain area. I feel like there's one I'm missing, but those are the, you know, typically uh, your different classes of multifamily. And then within that, there's A, B, and C. A is more your new construction. I'd say ha- housing or property built within the last 10 years or so. B-class housing is kind of in the middle that can range from the 2000s down into the 80s. 
traditional C-class housing, a little bit older, right? It usually has some deferred maintenance on it, might have some hair on it, can be built in the in the 70s, down in the 60s. So those are really the traditional, you know, classes or styles when I, when I think of uh, a multi the, the multifamily industry as a whole. No, you hit it on the head. And the one class you were thinking about, that last one is the luxury apartments where it's like, you know, they have crazy amenities and they have, you know, clubhouses and workout rooms and all that stuff. I've kind of seen it like either luxury or more of like the business professional apartments. And I've seen those. And so now that's good, man. That's that's the perfect answer, actually. So that's what I was trying to get you to. And I think because because I think a lot of times people don't realize, you know, I hear people say, you know, I want to be a realtor and I want to sell and then I want to buy houses and I want to do duplexes and I want to buy ranches and I want to do apartments and commercial. And I've actually done all that. I'm, you know, I've sold a billion dollars in real estate. I've acquired a lot of real estate. I've developed a lot of real estate. I've owned commercial strip centers. I own apartments. I own whole neighborhoods of houses, but it took time. Right. And so yeah. I wanted people to understand just, just in the multifamily niche, the complexity like you said, with senior housing, you got restricted. We got, man, it's just so much that, that can be done in this space. And so that's why I wanted to give some people some some context to garden style. So when you're, lo- when you're looking at sizes, that's another question I get all the time. And I, I know what your answer is, but I want to ask like I don't know because that's the whole purpose of me being here. When you're looking at the size of an apartment, how do you decide what size makes sense for you, what class and what town? If you were going to evaluate an opportunity, yeah, I mean size. I mean, I mean, the, to answer it first, you want the, it. It depends on the deal, right? But you want the best return you can get on your money, and that might be on a duplex, a two, you know, two units. It might be on a property that has a thousand units, right? I mean that. That's why we're in the business, you know, to make money, to create long-term wealth. And, you know, there's no better way of doing that than real estate. And if if you're working with your investors, and most of us in, in you know my industry, probably yours too, you are, you're looking to provide smart, safe returns to your investors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's always number one, right? Uh make make investors money without losing their money, protect their dollars first. You have a fiduciary responsibility uh and provide a very attractive return. Number two, I typically like a little bit larger deals because you get better better economy of scale and you get better management. Uh, I don't self-manage. I use third-party management companies. So I love to go into a market where there's a management company that might manage 4,000 units. They know the the ABC markets. They know the right locations. They know the best school districts. They're going to know it better than me. And I typically get that when I'm buying properties that are anywhere from 50 to 400 units in size. Mm -hmm. And even better, call it 150 units in up. You just get better economies of scale. You get better management companies. I always find that when you get into 100 units and less, you can get more, potentially might find a more of a mom and pop management company. And you you don't know if they're on your property once a day, once a week, once a year. Uh, Larger properties, you've got full-time staff typically of anywhere from three to 10 people on a property. Some of them even live there. It's their full-time job protecting the property, the asset, and your money. And, and, and that's why I love those types of assets. And then, you know, as for markets, you know, as I mentioned before, I love job growth markets. You know, when I started buying com- coming out of the Great Recession 2009, you know, four of the five top top job growth markets were in Texas, uh, Austin, San Antonio, DFW, and Houston. Mm-hmm. And that's really been my niche coming out of it. I've seen a lot of people lose money, make some very poor uh, investment decisions. 
thinking they can get the, a great cap rate or great cash flow investing in, a t- in an area with no growth or investing in the worst area of town. And, and that can be dangerous. So investing in smart, you know, well-located job growth markets is is really important. That's great, bro. That's good wisdom. So let's dive a little deeper. So if first, I want to give this answer for the people out there who are considering getting into multifamily, no matter their experience, I would say the ones inexperienced, what would you say if you could go back and give yourself wisdom many years ago, like you said earlier, what would be the top five things that you would do differently or would you you would do to set yourself up to invest in multifamily? What would be those top five things if we gave them like a checklist or a to-do list? Yeah. I mean, I was looking at some of your questions earlier. You know, I think I think the number one thing is 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 really also number two, three, four, and five. It's it's really learn how to find what's a good deal, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not easy for a lot of people. Right? You get into the business, everyone's trying to sell you a property. You might start looking for apartments. You meet someone. Next thing you know, you're looking at self storage. Next thing you're looking at a shopping center. Who knows, right? And and every broker has the best deal since sliced bread. So it's very easy to get distracted and, and spread too thin. You know, it, it, my recommendation is always stick with what you really want to focus on, develop a niche, and become an expert at it, and, and really put your blinders on because it's very easy to get distracted by the next shiny object. And and, and and that's, uh, you know, if you're on the sales side of the business, that's what you want to do, right? You want to sell everybody uh, and every deal is the best thing around. <laughs> um, but, but getting back to your first question, it's it's really, de- you know, developing a skill set of finding a good deal. And that really takes time, right? When I meet someone, they just get in the business and they've got five great deals that I should partner on with them or invest with. You know, my, my, uh, my red flag goes up right off the bat because it's just not that easy. No. Right. You always say you got to look at 100 deals. Maybe you do due diligence, uh, light due diligence on 50. Maybe you analyze and underwrite 30. You know, Maybe you write offers on 15. Maybe you go best and final on five deals to get one really attractive deal for you and your investors. So you know, we're in the we're in the volume business, right? We're in the needle in the haystack business. So you gotta look at a lot of deals. And, and I think that's the you know, the best advice I can, you know, I can give people, whether you're looking at apartments or any type of real estate, you know, to convince people that you've got a really good deal, you need to, you know, teach yourself that you gotta look at a lot of deals. It takes a while for you to really understand what a good deal is, what it looks like, what it smells like. Yeah, that's good. So what are those indicators, right? So if you if you could just run through that real quick, you know, IRR, equity multiple, cash on cash return, like we just throw these these things out every day in, in conversation and we keep moving to the next deal. But if I'm a new investor, whether I want to be a GP or an LP. So let's talk about what a GP and LP is first. And then let's talk about what are those indicators that they should be understanding the basic knowledge of when they're thinking about investing in multifamily. Yeah, GP, you're you know you're the partners that put the deal together. Whether you found the deal, whether you're helping sign off on the loan as a loan sponsor, uh, you help raise the capital. Uh, as I mentioned, you help find the deal, analyze the deal. You're the management team essentially, uh, the general partners. Um, and on the the LP side, the limited partners, typically you're a, you're an investor. You don't have control 
control and making decisions, but you're an owner in the entity that owns the property. And traditionally, you're you know you're you're a private investor, whether you're accredited or sophisticated in that deal. As for you know um, returns, I, it, everybody uses different parameters, right? Some people just are looking for cash on cash returns, which is not dissimilar to getting a yield in the money market right now. Mm-hmm. But but you know traditionally that's the reason we invest in real estate. You want that cash on cash return. Not all investors are looking for that, right? There are some investors are just looking for a great return, like like a stock or anything else. But the beauty of real estate is you get great cash on cash returns, great yield along the way, great tax advantages along the way as well. And then the the ratio or the parameter that most investors look for uh, at the end of the deal over you know, a whole period, whether it's three years, five years, seven years, 10 years, which includes your profits at the sale is typically uh, an IRR, an internal rate of, ret- rate of return, or an ROI, which is the overall return on your investment. Uh, ROI is usually, you know, if you've got a 19% ROI, your IRR is usually, call it, you know, 14 to to 17 percent uh, and that's usually what most investors are looking for you know it's five to nine percent cash on cash returns and uh you know roi or an, an irr of depends on the type of deal right yeah uh you know it could be anywhere from 10 percent, could be upwards of 20 percent. for sure for sure so quick question and then we'll pivot what is the difference between IRR and ROI? Because you know you hear these acronyms thrown out, and for most new investors or investors getting into this space, so if you could just in your mind say, "Hey, here's the clear difference of how I have it set. This is ROI. This is IRR, and here's how I see it." Yeah, I- IRR I think is 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 a more you know Wall Street terminology. It confuses a lot of people. It factors in the time value of money. Yep, your IRR is typically higher if you you know you sell a great deal you make everyone a lot of money in two to three years you can still have a great fantastic deal but you hold longer and you sell it for 10 years maybe you get better cash flow that irr is lower so, so investors just use different you know parameters yep uh but irr i always think of a more sophisticated investors look at irr or, or wall street funds are irr driven i prefer roi for real estate i think it's a lot easier for most investors to um to understand and i think it's a great you know, it's a great ratio uh, financial indicator to look at real estate deals over the short term and the long term. And, and ROI is exactly what it sounds like. It's return on your investment over a certain period of time. And then you can you can annualize it, right? It's all the cash flow plus all your profits at the sale divided by how much you invested in the deal. If you're if you're an LP, if an investor invested, you know, a hundred thousand, you divide it by a hundred thousand, you know, maybe you get a two, you know, a two hundred percent uh, ROI. And if you want to annualize it, you just divide that right by how many years you were in the deal, whatever the, the whole period was of the of the investment. Perfect. Perfect answer. I couldn't have said it any better. And I think what that does is because people really get confused between those two. Am I tracking this or am I tracking that? And when I'm talking to them, I say, you got to find your measuring stick because you can't try to yeah. follow everything you hear out there. Like find what works for you. Like you said earlier, really understand how to underwrite the deals and, and follow them. So let's dive. I prefer in. 
ROI. And I've yep. changed, right? In the beginning, I used to tell people, Taryn, don't don't look at the ROI. Just mm-hmm. look at the cash on cash return. You know, this mm-hmm. is a seven-year hold. Invest for your, you know, seven, eight percent. And in seven, 10 years, if if the market gets better, which it traditionally does with real estate, that's the beauty of long-term holds, right? You have the ability to ride through the ups and downs. And then over a long period of time, like anything, traditionally you're going up. So I would say don't, you know, don't focus on the overall return because seven years is a long ways down the road, right? Yeah, for um, sure. But a lot of people, pref- you know, it's, it's you, some people look at both. You know, IRR is a little bit of a different, different beast. And it's, it, I think it's a better ratio, a better financial indicator for those looking to not uh, looking to focus on shorter term ret- returns, like three to five years. No, that's good. But that, every, everyone's different. You're absolutely right. For sure. That's good. So one of the things too, like people always talk about value add, you know, and you hear the Burr method in the residential space a lot. And when you're thinking about like, there's obviously a lot of developers right now who, when we were short on housing, man, you the permits getting passed just in the state of Texas alone for new apartments was like at an all time high. Now, obviously there's been a, you know, a delay and a, a kind of slow down when you're thinking value add versus do I buy a class A property? How do you, how do you squeeze the juice out of those returns? Like, like how do you see an asset, buy it at a good price and add value? What are some of those basic things you like to look through in your mind? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. It's a fun answer. Cause there's, there's so many different ways to squeeze those dollars out. <clears throat> you know, number one, is just buying rights, right? You have to understand the market. You have to understand cap rates. You have to understand price per unit. You have to understand where you want to be, where you don't want to be. You know what what uh, area of the city there is, is path of progress where you have the better potential to protect your investment and enhance your investment long term. You know, path of progress is typically where jobs are coming in, new developments going, better school districts, etc. You know, value add can come from two different ways. As I mentioned before, sometimes value add can just be operating or running the business better, right? Reducing expenses, reducing payroll might even mean adding payroll so you can manage better, uh, you know, handle work orders better, create happier tenants, and, and then create higher retention, meaning invest, uh, tenants are, are staying longer, they're referring more people, and they're more likely to pay, you know, their annual rent increase. You know, so on the physical side, right, a lot of it, sometimes you can create value just by eliminating deferred maintenance, new roofs, new siding, uh, new color pops throughout, replacing signage, right? Sometimes just, you know, when you drive down the street, when you see updated signage, you assume that's a cool, new, nice property. It's not always the case, but it's a good start, right? Yep. You know, improving landscaping, improving the amenities, updating the leasing center. I love to create a kind of a Starbucks style, uh, social millennium style um, leasing center atmosphere, uh, redoing the pool, the new pool furniture throughout, adding dog parks, which can, which can be a real social side of the business. In, in, in my business, I think oh, just about a third of our tenants have pets. So pets pay rent too, right? That's another <laughs> revenue generator. Uh, you know, new cable contracts, revenue generator. I'll do valet trash, right? <clears throat> Who wants to walk their trash out to the dumpster uh, when it's hot, when it's cold, when it's rainy? Valet trash, another way to drive income. I had uh, technology packages to most all of our properties, which includes keyless entry locks, Bluetooth, uh, like Nest thermostats, right? Bluetooth leak sensors and all the wet areas, the kitchens, the bathrooms. It's probably something else I'm missing there. 
No, that's um, good. And then on the physical side, also just renovating your apartment, right? Let's say you can get 1200, you know, currently an apartment is renting for 1200, but I think I can get 1600, right? 400 hours more if I do, you know, one, two, three, right? Which is replacing the laminate countertops with quartz, not necessarily ripping out the existing cabinetry, but just doing new shaker style uh, cabinet faces, replacing fixtures and finishes and adding subway tile backsplash in the kitchens, you know, do you, are you going to do new appliances and go black or are you going to do a, new appliances and go stainless? There's all kinds of ways you can, you can squeeze those dollars, but those are a lot of the, the ways we do Wash for dryers, right? Who wants to walk downstairs to do their laundry and find your laundry in someone else's basket, right? <laughs> um, so, so I love to buy properties that already have washer dryer hookups in the units. And I love to buy properties where I can add washer dryers to, you know, to the specific units. So those are, those are some wonderful value plays that we really focus on uh, that I love when I buy properties. No, I love it, man. You're dropping some gems right now. So when we think about I want to pivot to today after this last question. So you said earlier you own single family rentals and there's a lot of investors, including myself, that own a lot of houses, townhomes, duplexes. How did you make that jump to bigger multifamily and why did you feel like you needed to make that jump? Why didn't you just keep managing houses? Yeah, it's a good question. And sometimes I sometimes at some point in time, I thought I should have never left single family homes. Um, you know, I went to a couple of seminars. I, I had a job in the development business, so I was already doing real estate. And it was a good corporate job. And on the side, you know, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So I was going to some of these seminars and listening to gurus like you, Terrence, speak on this and that. So I started flipping homes. I flipped my first home in Hermosa Beach, California, Southern California. And I made $100,000 on my first flip, uh, which was a lot of money. That is and, a lot of money. And, and yeah, this goes back you know, 15 years ago. And I often go, I should have never stopped, right? If I had continued that momentum, I could have made so much more money. But but I took a different route and I took that 100,000 and I went and got my my master, my MBA at University of Southern California. And and I went into what I always wanted to do, which was development. I went along, I went, I went, I kind of took a couple rights and lefts after I, I started in single family homes. You know, while I had a good job in an MBA, I was I, I was buying single family homes across the country, uh doing some some fix and flips with some guys in Atlanta. I think at some point I ended up with 15 homes and a couple small apartments. You know, I, I'll be honest with you. I learned I didn't want to do that anymore because 2008, 2009 mm -hmm. hit and you know, everyone says real estate can only go up. But I went through that. It, it did not go up for yeah. for a couple of years. It was ugly and painful. And I was negotiating short sales and trying to do loan modifications, you know, on properties and, and you know, vacant, had vacancy issues and rents were going down. It was it was a hard period of time to manage a couple single family homes. And and I can tell you, it's a full-time job managing, you know, 10 to 20 homes for those of you that do it, if not more. Yeah. And, and, and that, I'll be honest with you, the pain from that experience wasn't, wasn't exactly caused by single family homes. It was really caused by that period of time. And I didn't want to do that anymore. And it's what really pushed me into the, you know, the stability of, of multifamily because it, you know, as bad as, you know, the great, you know, financial crisis was at that period of time, you know, I always call it a real estate recession, right? If people think everything at that time went back to the bank, if it was real estate and the reality was that was not apartments. I think the foreclosure rate of apartments was like 0.4%. Yeah. 
through that period of time, occupancy went up and it ended up being a phenomenal time to buy multifamily. So I find it just to be safer, uh, less headaches, less, less issues, better management alternatives, you know, more, better trained people in their industries to help with legal issues and leasing and repair and maintenance and management than with single family homes having to trust, you know, a small management company. So sorry, long, long answer there. But that's really what pushed me or took me from single family homes into into apartments. No, that's good. And I think the big thing is, I think, you know, as I, you know, because I'm always, that's why I named the show Real Estate Entrepreneur, because I have a lot of realtors that I've trained and that are part of my organization. And I'm always trying to get them to see that you can, you can get past buying a, you know, one house, two house, three house type strategy. I think where they have a hard time with syndication, and this will be my one of my last questions, then I want to pivot. They can't wrap their mind around how to make money as a multifamily syndicator. So, you know, I put together a, an acronym. I do acronyms for everything. I call it the GRAP, G-R-A-A-P-P. And then I break down how you can make money from those ways. But when you look at it as a syndicator, just syndications in general, how can you make money as a, as a GP? Right. Like, what does that look like for our listeners out there? Yeah. And one thing before we, we pivot to that, it doesn't mean you can't make a lot of money in single family homes. Right. I know a lot of people that do. And I've done some consulting for you know, some some families that just have crushed it with single family homes or some individuals. I can think of a million of them and they, they wanted to go from sing, single family homes into multifamily, but their single family home business was a huge success, right? They had built the right infrastructure. They had done it a long time. They figured out what to do, or what not to do. And they were phenomenal entrepreneurs at it. And then in the end, I, I ended up telling them, Hey, stick with, stick with what you know best, right? Yep. You know, it's, you have a really successful business over here you know, don't kill the golden goose. And for some people, it's hard to go from single family home to multifamily when you when you're doing, you know, 20 flips a year and you own, you know, 20 to 40 homes and you've built that business there and it can be really successful. So, you know, like anything in life, there's pros and cons to both. And the key is is becoming an expert and in, in, in be, you know, building a niche at, a niche with it. Yep. You know, how do you make money as a syndicator? A couple of different ways. I mean, you know, people always ask, how did I get started? And, you know, it's it's really you do one one good deal a year by your investors and and and, and it takes a long period of time, right? As I mentioned earlier, finding good deals is really hard. So you find one one, you know, first year you do one year, next year maybe you do two years, next year you maybe do one year, next year maybe you do zero deal deals, and next year maybe you do three years. It, Yep. It takes a pro. It's a long period of time of making investors money, and they keep coming back for more. Typically, right? Mm -hmm. um, but on an individual deal, normally, you know, how does a, a GP make money? Is with you know, let's say with every dollar that comes in from positive cash flow after you pay your expenses and your and your lender, those dollars are split anywhere. I'd say eighty twenty. Yeah, eighty percent go back to the investors. Twenty percent stay with the GP. Yep. And that's not always a lot of money, but over time that builds up. We'll charge a typical 1% uh, asset management fee. Uh, we certainly make fees when we buy the property. I think traditionally you'll find groups that syndicate. Terrence, to, to use your term, we'll charge anywhere from a two to sometimes upwards of 5% acquisition fee, which is a percent of the purchase price. Yep. You know, you know, I don't say we make money on that because we have a, a big team, we have a lot of expenses. That those dollars go to, it, 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 I I typically take that fee as well and just roll it in as an investment into the deal. 
Yeah. Um, and then you may, you usually get a piece of the back end as well when you sell. Uh, and I'll use that same ratio. Every positive dollar made net net dollar made at the sale uh, is usually split 80 20 as a result as well 80 percent to the investors you know you're always trying to give most of the money back to the investors and keep a small piece or pie to yourself and, and then you got to do that over and over and over again for sure um, and that's how that's how we make money in our business no i love it so yeah i created that acronym it's um g r a a p p so you have like the loan guarantee fee so a guarantee fee like you have a high net worth individual who's willing to sign on the loan there's a fee there the refinance fee if you end up refinancing it and keeping the asset just obviously going through a refi is a lot of work asset management fee like you talked about earlier acquisition fee as the other a and then the other p is property management if you decide to in-house manage it or third-party manage it, and then the last one is profit split. And that's how I've always explained it uh, to anybody. It's like, how do you make money? And I just created that acronym. I call it the GRAP. And I don't even know if that's how you pronounce it, but G-R-A-A-P-P. And it breaks it down. A lot of those little value add plays can make a lot of money. You know, at, you know, I just was running, running a calc. If you could raise rents $100 a month, right? Or let's just do $50 a month. $50 a month, and maybe you've got a 100-unit apartment complex in, in College Station, you know, you multiply that times 12 months a year and divide that by a, what, a five cap, you just added a, you know, a million two to the value of your property. Wow. That's the greatest way to create money uh, in our business. Is raising the rents within reason and really having a value to be able to raise the rents. Yeah. No, yeah. I love it. Yeah. And I, about it. Yeah. And I think People, you know, I talk to people all the time about, you know, NOI and why driving that NOI drives value. Now, like you said, economies of scale, $50 times 100 units, you know, over 12 months and then taking that total gross revenue and then dividing it and getting that cap rate that spits out the that extra value on top. So if you bought it for 10 million, now you got it's worth 11.1, right? So no, that makes sense. That's really good. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, start charging for pet rent and application fees and, uh, you know, uh, valet trash fees. And, you know, there's another $100 more in fees. So there's another million two added in value as well. So it adds up fast and they can become really big numbers. For sure. So I got a couple of final questions. And that's where I told you, we send out that template of questions. I follow it sometimes. Sometimes I don't, man. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I like to keep it organic and real. When we're thinking about you, you know, individually, you know, just as a, an investor, an entrepreneur, uh, multifamily, you've, you've grown, a, you know, your AUM is over a billion dollars. What is your moonshot like what's that one goal or dream that other people in your life think is impossible but it's something that you want to pursue to achieve what is that moonshot yeah that's a good question that was the hardest question for me to answer of the of the 16 you gave me here <laughs> yeah i'm still trying to figure that out to be honest with you you know i've been knee deep in my business focusing on you know making money for my investors for a long period of time i've got i've got three young girls that are 12 or 13 now, 13, 11, and eight. And, uh, you know, most of my free time is is with them and, and playing sports with them and coaching them. So, you know, my, that's all I'm already experiencing my moonshot this, to some extent. You know, looking forward, you know, I always wanted to get more involved with my community and philanthropy. So, my wife and I have been very focused on building the family trust and, 
and reaching out to specific charities and groups in, in our area where we live, where we can help add value here in, in Northern California. I applied for the local school board, Terrence. Some people ask me why the heck would I want to do that. <laughs> I have a school board meeting here in a couple hours. Uh, again, my part of my moonshot has always been wanting to work really hard, build a successful business, and and, and then take some time to you know give back to the others in the in the community. And then and then you know the business moonshot. You know I always tell people you know as I mentioned you know don't kill the golden goose right. So you know we've built this tremendous multifamily business and we have a phenomenal team. I got a great partner and, and great staff that have been with me forever, but. I took my head outside of multifamily and I think of your background, like how cool would it be to own, you know, a sports team, a sports franchise yeah, or, be cool. or be involved as a partner or the management management and one as an ex-athlete like yourself, that I think that would be the the mood shot uh, uh, dream for me at, at some point. One day we will put a group together to buy something, man. That sounds good. I'll take your lead. <laughs> yep. Let's do it. So final qu- two questions. You know, I have all my guests come on and recommend a book and why can you you recommended a book why did you recommend it and what has it done in your life yeah it's actually it's, it's the it's the top book in black behind me uh it's called think and grow rich by napoleon hill probably given hundreds of people that book and it's for me when i had lost almost everything coming out of 2008 it it you know it got me up on my feet you know i've I've been blessed. I was always one of these guys that you know, knew when I fell, I was going to land on my feet. And, uh, and, and, and that didn't always happen because sometimes I landed on my head. Uh, <laughs> but I knew I was going to always pop up and land back on my feet. Right. Yep. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, Think and Grow Rich is just a very motivational um, a book, uh, primarily about the success traits of Andrew Carnegie. Yeah, and these are lessons looking back over a hundred years. But the funny thing about that book, Terrence, is I've never finished reading it. Uh, it's always been one of these things. I, you know, I read half of it. I get I get motivated. I highlight you know, all these wonderful motivational sentences, and and I get so motivated that. I put the book down and I jump right back into action. I think that's where money is made in yep. in real estate and entrepreneurship. So uh, that's always my best book, personally, professionally. But like I said, interestingly enough, I, I don't think I've ever gotten but 75, 80% through it. And, and it motivates me to go do something else I've always wanted to do. The good thing is that 75, 80% got you to where you're at today. For our listeners, as we close, where can they find you? And then any any, what's your final thought for our listeners on the uh, Real Estate Entrepreneur Podcast? Yeah, I think uh, you've got my contact information. You know, I always tell everybody this. I'm always available for them. So, you know, call my cell. You can text me in the middle of the night. I'll try to get back to you the next day. But uh, email is mike at l5invests.com, which is my company name. L is in Larry, the numeral five, invest.com. And you go to the website, L5 Investments, learn a little bit more about what we do. You can see our properties, et cetera, and learn a little bit more about some of our value plays. Um, my felt, so, cell phone number is 310-991-3091. Gosh, what do I leave you with? I, I think it's just never, never, never give up. I remember in high school, my mom gave me a picture of this, fro- this uh, frog that was being strangled by a bird that was halfway down his throat. And uh 
I always think of that as is is sometimes when you really, really want to do something, never give up, surround yourself with better, smarter people uh, like Terrence and, and your team, you know, find a good guru, find a great mentor, but stick to what you've always wanted to do, right? It's, it's never an easy road. But those that really work hard and believe in it almost always find success with it. Man, that's good, bro. Well, thank you again, Mike, for being on the show. Lots of wisdom packed in uh, this 45, 50 minutes. It went a little longer than I wanted, so I apologize. But thank you for the wisdom. I just the questions I wanted to keep them coming. And I know that this show will make an impact and and really give people a lot of tools, you know, perspective and thoughts. And hey, you've done it. One billion, man. So congrats to that, man. We'll talk soon. Thank you for being on the podcast. You got it. Thanks, Terrence. Appreciate you having me and congrats on your success as well. Yes, sir. Appreciate you. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of The Real Estate Entrepreneur with Terrence Murphy. Please subscribe on whichever platform you are listening and consider leaving a five-star review as that will help us gain traction and continue to bring you knowledge in the real estate industry. For more content, head over to TerrenceMurphy.com.